1931, a man named Stuart N. Lake published a book. Ostensibly a work of history, it had the benefit of Lake actually meeting with his subject on several occasions before their death in 1929. However, what he actually published was the foundational text of a legend that was heavy on tales of heroic deeds and white knights carrying pistols and rifles, but short on actual facts. But this legend is still with us today in popular culture. It has been brought to us on the silver screen by the likes of Randolph Scott, Hugh O'Brien, Burt Lancaster, James Gardner, Jimmy Stewart, Kurt Russell, and Kevin Costner. Even though he was never portrayed by that titan of the Western genre, Lake's influence can even be felt in the films of John Wayne. But like I said, this is not history, but legend. Because though Lake met with the subject of his book eight times, that subject was either extremely reticent to share details, gave incorrect information to make himself look better, or asked that certain facts be omitted entirely. What information Lake was given, he most certainly embellished. And what he wasn't given, he fabricated out of whole cloth. So perhaps more than anything, Lake's book, Wyatt Earp Frontier Marshal, established its titular hero in the public consciousness as the prototypical frontier paladin. What Lake gifted later generations is the story of one man heroically cleaning up a lawless town while fighting on the side of law against desperados. But in truth, Earp was none of those things. He was never even a marshal. What this largely fictional account left out was the more human story of a family trying to gain status and fortune on the edge of civilization, sometimes by working with the law and occasionally against it. And that's the story I want to tell today. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 84, The O.K. Corral, Part 2, The Legend of Wyatt Earp. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we started laying the groundwork for one of the most notorious historical events to ever come out of Arizona. To that end, we talked about the stage that our great drama would play out on, the booming town of Tombstone. But now that the scene is set, we need to introduce our players— and that means I guess we can finally get around to talking about the Earp family. The Earps were of Irish stock who had come into the New World via England in the early 18th century. Their ancestors eventually sided with the colonial rabble when they got uppity and decided to rebel against George III. And after this scrappy little rebellion managed to win, their progenitors followed thousands of others by crossing over the Appalachians into Kentucky. That's where we catch up with Walter Earp, the grandfather of Virgil, Morgan, Wyatt, and others, who farmed, taught school, acted as a notary public, and was a licensed preacher for the Methodist Episcopal Church. Neighbors referred to him as Judge Earp, as he was elected twice to be a Justice of the Peace. In 1845, after nearly two decades in Kentucky, he picked up and moved with some of his grown children to Monmouth, Illinois, where he would die in 1853 at the ripe old age of 65 or 66. 
One of those children that accompanied him to Illinois was Nicholas Erb, who had been born in 1813 while the family was still living in North Carolina. Nicholas would marry two women, Abigail Storm in 1836, who would die shortly after the birth of their second child, and then Virginia Cooksey in 1840, who would be the mother of the famous Earp brothers. Between both of his wives, Nicholas would have ten children. When the Mexican-American War broke out, Nicholas patriotically joined a volunteer brigade, serving as its third sergeant, though he was sent back home in December 1847 after being kicked by a mule. But this brief tenure in the military did have one major ramification. When his fourth son was born on March 19, 1848, he was named after Nicholas's commanding officer, Wyatt Barry Stapp Earp. Like his father, Nicholas also served as a justice of the peace and farmed, but also appears to have run a saloon, though all you really needed in those days were glasses, whiskey, and a place to serve it. What we know about Nicholas's personality is that he was a stern and often angry man who was prone to fits of profanity. For example, he was elected the head of a wagon train to San Bernardino, California in 1864, and those on the trail with him wrote that he was unsympathetic to those who fell behind and would threaten to spank kids if their parents would not. We can also dive into some armchair psychology to say that some of that hard-driving attitude rubbed off on his children. It was after arriving in San Bernardino that Nicholas's son, Wyatt, decided he couldn't stand farming and set out to blaze something of his own path in life. This is something that his older brothers had already done as several of them had joined the Union Army during the Civil War, something that 13-year-old Wyatt had tried to do before his father stopped him. Author Jeff Gwynn says Wyatt and Nicholas fought over the latter's decision to farm in San Bernardino, a fight that might have actually come to blows. There's a lot more we could say about Nicholas, and Gwynn certainly does, but this is where we are going to leave him behind because, as you probably have guessed, it's much more important that we follow Wyatt. Just know that Nicholas will eventually return to the Midwest to serve as a constable and justice of the peace in Missouri before eventually heading out to California again, where he would die in 1907. I hope you noticed by now that the Earp family is hardworking but hardly distinguished. So Wyatt, his brothers, and so many other young men of the time were constantly scrambling to get ahead in life and find a bright future. Wyatt would attempt just about everything to make a name for himself, with law enforcement being only a brief part of that, and really he was just interested in the paycheck and not some noble ideal of establishing law and order. He worked in freighting, on a stage line, and grading track for the Union Pacific Railroad. He and most of the family eventually gravitated back toward his parents' home in Lamar, Missouri, which is where we find him in November 1869, where he was appointed to be his father's replacement as constable. And the next year, he would be elected to this office again, beating out three opponents, one of which just happened to be his half-brother Newton. In January 1870, we also find Nicholas Earp, serving as Justice of the Peace, presiding over Wyatt's first, and only formal, marriage. Wife number one was Orilla Sutherland, the daughter of a local hotel owner. However, less than a year later, Orilla and the couple's unborn baby both died, most likely from typhoid. And this event began what can only be described as a downward spiral for Wyatt. 
Soon after the death, he and his family were found fighting with Arilla's family. The speculation is that, of course, it was over his now-deceased wife, but Wyatt Earp historian Scott Dyke says further research indicates that it was a much more mundane business dispute. Apparently, the two families were operating competing stills. But whatever the cause, it's never a good sign when the town constable is getting into fights in the street. What's worse is that Wyatt was later accused of misappropriation of government funds, and in the face of these charges, he skipped town, though others who were indicted were eventually acquitted and the charges against Wyatt were dropped. In March 1871, so just a year and two months removed from Arilla's death, Wyatt was in hot water again, accused of acting with two others to get a certain man drunk and steal his horses. Wyatt chose to run again, taking part of an escape from jail in Van Buren, Arkansas, or at least that's Gwyn's version. Dyke mentions that he may have actually been out on bail. And the trial of the remaining members of the supposed plot ended up going nowhere, and eventually it looks like charges against Wyatt had been dropped too. Still, skipping town twice in a year's time to avoid charges is never the sign that one has their life together. In Lake's biography, Wyatt spent this time out hunting bison on the Great Plains, one of those grand romantic images from the West that would surely strike a chord with readers. In reality, this was one of the author's fabrications. Instead, Wyatt and his brother Morgan were in Peoria, Illinois, working in bordellos as either pimps or bouncers. And we know this because an opportunistic politician decided to score some political points with the conservative bloc by making arrests in houses of ill repute, something that was occasionally done for show, though most of the rest of the time the bordellos operated quite openly and were recognized as being vital to the local economy. Many paid city fines and just kept operating. Wyatt and Morgan worked for a notorious madam named Jane Haspel and were caught in a raid in February 1872 and then again in May. The first time around, they may have been mistaken for customers and given a lighter sentence, but the second time they were charged as being part of the operation and fined $44.50 each. Neither had that kind of money, and they refused to do the menial work the court could have assigned, so they sat in jail instead. It appears that Wyatt didn't take that many lessons away from this incident, because just a few months later in September 1872, he was caught up in another police sweep, this time of a boat that acted as a floating casino and bordello. A local newspaper specifically mentioned Wyatt, calling him the Peoria Bummer, and that he was fined another $43. Also mentioned is a woman, Sally Haskell, who called herself Wyatt's wife. Alright, this is going to take some untangling. This was probably 15-year-old Sally Haspel, not Haskell, the daughter of Bordello Madam and Wyatt employer Jane Haspel, and may have well been a fleeing Wyatt was having as part of the spiral after his wife died. Some have claimed that Sally was Wyatt's second wife, though Dyke insists that they only knew each other for a few months, so she couldn't have been a wife common law or otherwise. It was common practice for prostitutes of the time to use the surname of their employer, because then they could not be compelled to testify in courts against their quote-unquote husbands. I will also note here that common law marriages were almost the norm in the West during this age, so it would have been unreasonable for the courts to ask Sally to produce a marriage license. 
Let's take the name thing one step further by pointing out that Sally and Maddie were very common false names prostitutes used on police records, which also makes connecting dots using those records incredibly difficult. While I'm on the subject, I will have to say that the Earps of Wyatt's generation, at least when they were younger, could never be accused of being uxorious. That means showing extreme affection or attachment to one's wife. I'm sorry, but I learned the word uxorious years ago and never thought I would ever actually get to use it in a sentence. So tell your friends, come to this podcast for the history, but stay for the vocabulary lesson. Anyway, my point is that Wyatt would have a grand total of three marriages. I agree with Scott Dyke that poor Sally Haspel slash Haskell doesn't really make the cut, with Urilla being the only one that was strictly quote-unquote legal. His brothers would also have common-law wives and showed a similar level of indifference at times. For example, older brother Virgil eloped with a girl right before his Civil War service when both sets of parents opposed the match. Virgil's enlistment papers show him as single, and after he went off to war, he didn't even bother to write his new bride despite the fact that she was now pregnant. Her parents told her that Virgil had been killed and the whole family was now moving to Washington. After he left the army in 1865, Virgil apparently didn't even go looking for her, which is more than a little baffling. All this is to say that Wyatt and his brothers were not lawful good paladins riding across the chaparral to avenge every wrong. Neither were they particularly evil or malicious. They were like all other ambitious young men of the day, trying to get ahead in a rough and tumble world. Wyatt just happened to have a particularly bad patch, not to mention some unlucky breaks after Arella's death. But by 1874, after those several years that he didn't want to tell Lake what he was actually doing, we find him in Wichita, Kansas. And this is where the myth of Wyatt Earp, frontier lawman, starts to really take shape. While in Wichita with his brother James and his wife, Wyatt gambled to get some money. James operated a saloon, and James's wife ran a bordello. The Earp name definitely pops up again and again in court documents during this era. But by this time, Wyatt was also looking to make a bit more out of himself. The next time his name appeared in print, it would be for doing something laudable. Wichita, like most towns in that area, was a cow town. It made its money from the massive cattle drives that came up from Texas, herding the famous longhorns to the trains that would take them to the eventual slaughterhouse. That was lucrative enough, but then the cowboys, after an endless series of days spent on the dusty trail, wanted to blow off steam, get drunk, and cause trouble. So while cow towns loved the cowboys' money, they also wanted law enforcement to make sure the cowboys themselves would start heading back south without causing too much of a ruckus. In October 1874, Wyatt was apparently hired by some local merchants to head after some cowboys and collect money owed to them. The local paper gave him and others some small praise for this, and it sent him on a different trajectory. It was very fortuitous timing, as the town leaders decided that they needed to expand their police force to cut down on cowboy antics and violence. So Wyatt was hired as a deputy town marshal, which sounds a little bit more romantic than it actually was. His duties were mostly carrying out menial tasks like collecting dead animals off the streets, enforcing building codes, and inspecting chimneys. 
but he apparently was a good lawman and developed a reputation as an honest man and someone who was good at pistol-whipping cowboys that needed to be cowed, but not arrested per se. However, he was destined to lose this first stint for no better reason than his temper got the better of him. 1876 was an election year, and the person who was running against the current town marshal, which was White's employer, made the public statement that if the marshal was re-elected, then he would hire all of Wyatt's brothers to flesh out the police department. This allegation of cronyism or nepotism or whatever sounds pretty mild to us today, and really it was back then too. But it got Wyatt really hot under the collar. He tracked down the candidate over the remarks, and the town marshal eventually had to pull his deputy off of a severely beaten man. Though he had been building a solid reputation, this act of violence meant that Wyatt was fined $30, lost his job, and to add insult to injury, Wichita enforced a vagrancy law to drive the now unemployed Wyatt from the city. It was not the most glorious start to a law career, but the upside was that Wyatt was not out of the job too long. It turns out that the legendary cow town of Dodge City was hiring, and an aggressive man like Wyatt was an asset, not a liability in that even more rough-and-tumble environment. Here he becomes assistant town marshal and basically carried on as he had in Wichita, bashing unruly cowboys about the skull with his gun when they got out of hand, collecting fees and other small tasks, but at least for slightly higher pay. And again, I have to stress that Wyatt wasn't a lawman because of innate desire for justice. No, he was looking to get ahead in the world, and the assistant marshal gig was just a stepping stone until he could find something better. And four months later, he tried to find that something better. Because the main bulk of Dodge City's problems was that small space of time between when the cowboys came to town and when they staggered back to Texas hungover and much poorer, law enforcement was essentially a seasonal gig. So over the winter of 1876-77, Wyatt relocated to the equally infamous Deadwood in South Dakota, selling firewood and riding shotgun for a local stage line. However, Deadwood appears to have been a dead end, so he drifted back to Kansas. But the police force was fully staffed for the season, so it was time to look for another temporary line of work. This time he chose bounty hunting because why not? Wyatt was hired by the local railroad to hunt down two men who had robbed the line. Hearing rumors that the two could be found hiding in the area of Fort Griffin in Texas, about 110 miles or so west of Fort Worth, he headed there in 1877. While he didn't find the train robbers, what he did find was a man whose name would be forever linked with his, John Henry Holliday, otherwise known as Doc Holliday. Now, I'm going to dive more into Doc Holliday's backstory next time, as this week is consumed with the early life and times of Wyatt Earp, but suffice it to say that the alcoholic, quick-to-anger, compulsive gambler, and part-time dentist was living in the area with his on-and-off-again lady love, Kate Elder, a.k.a. Mary Harney, a.k.a. Big Nose Kate. This was just a first meeting, and then Wyatt drifted off to Missouri to keep searching for his pair of train robbers, and Doc kept drifting around drinking, gambling, and fighting violently with Kate. Wyatt never found his train robbers, but did hear in the meantime that the Marshal of Dodge City had been killed while trying to arrest two drunk Texans. 
so he returned to Dodge and applied to be assistant marshal again, something that he knew he could do and would pay the bills while he looked again for something better. But his second round in Dodge would help go on to cement part of his legend. In June 1878, Doc and Kate relocated to Dodge, where Doc tried his rare stab of actually being a dentist, which brought him back into contact with Wyatt. The very next month, a performance in the local theater at 3 in the morning was interrupted when three intoxicated cowboys out on the street decided to fire through the walls. No one was injured, but the sounds of gunfire brought Wyatt and another assistant marshal running. The cowboys jumped on their horses and sped away with the two lawmen giving chase. Gunfire was exchanged, and one of the cowboys was shot in the arm and toppled off his horse. Wyatt, of course, would claim that he was the one who managed to land the shot. However, that would come back around to haunt him when this particular cowboy died, and his funeral was attended by a high number of vengeful-minded Texans. And it's in the midst of these troubles when it's possible that some Texans were legitimately thinking of cornering the assistant town marshal that Doc and Wyatt would become fast friends. The details are not fully documented or really understood, but Wyatt always credited Doc with saving his life while he was outgunned during some law enforcement assignment. And whatever his flaws... Wyatt was apparently a man who was loyal to his friends and family, which explains his fast friendship with Holiday, despite Wyatt's status as a lawman and desire to move up in the world, something that being friends with a drunken troublemaker like Holiday made infinitely more difficult. Also during this interlude with the Cowboys, we get another piece in the legend of Wyatt Earp, Frontier Lawman. Now, there are three versions of events, two of which came from Wyatt himself in his later years and got more colorful each time he told it. Apparently, a Texan named Clay Allison, who was a friend of the man Wyatt claimed to have killed and who had a solid reputation as a gunfighter and killer, came to Dodge to confront the man who had shot his friend. According to one account by the equally famous Bat Masterson, all lawmen were told to stay indoors until Allison got tired of stalking the streets and looking for a fight. But according to Wyatt's first telling, Masterson covered him with a shotgun while he confronted Allison in the street. In this version, a tense stare-down happened, but the Texan caught sight of Masterson, knew the odds were not in his favor, and backed down. Now please conjure up in your head images of the end of the movie Clue, while I'll tell you that it also could have happened another way. In this version, hero Wyatt Earp managed to pull his gun and jam it into Allison's ribs before the Texan was able to draw his pistol. Allison backed down initially, but a short time later, after imbibing some liquid courage, he got on his horse and was making threats again. So Wyatt calmly walked out into the street with his gun drawn, you can almost hear the spurs on his boots clinking, until Allison turned tail and literally got out of dodge. Like I said, that last one came at the end of Wyatt's life and was certainly the most removed from the truth. Still, it was now part of the budding myth of Wyatt Earp. However, Wyatt soon soured on Dodge City. What happened was the son of a Texas cattle baron was causing all sorts of ruckus and had a confrontation with the mayor over some fines for disturbing the peace, which basically boiled down to, do you know who my daddy is? The mayor stood firm, however, so the young man in question decided to ride by his house and shoot up the place. 
However, the mayor wasn't home on the night in question, and the bullets ended up killing an actress that he was letting stay there while he was out of town. As you can imagine, everyone was outraged. Wyatt and Masterson were sent as part of a posse to bring the young man into justice. Shots were exchanged with Wyatt eventually killing the Texan's horse and Masterson wounding him in the shoulder. It should have been a triumphant moment for Wyatt, but that's where things took a turn. Because of his father's connections, no one came forth to testify against the Texan, and eventually the court was forced to drop the case. The kid had literally gotten away with murder. That incident, plus the city council deciding to reduce the pay of its law enforcement, convinced Wyatt that he should get on with looking for the next big opportunity. According to Gwen, he considered getting into the cattle game himself, but the initial investment proved too steep for him. But what he did have was a gaggle of brothers out in various parts of the country trying to strike it rich. And that's when he got news from Virgil that maybe there was some place new for him to try his luck. Sunny Arizona. Okay, we need to pump the brakes on our narrative right now, because when Wyatt showed up in Arizona, he was not alone. He left Dodge City in the company of Celia and Blaylock, whom everyone called Maddie. She had been born in Johnson County, Iowa in 1850, but had left home as a teenager to find better living than with her parents, who were apparently harsh and cheerless folks. Like many desperate women of the time, she probably turned to prostitution to get by, if her experiences later in life are something to go on. This could be the origin of her nickname as well. As I mentioned earlier, many women in such conditions chose to use the name Maddie or Sally, especially when it was a judge asking for it. We don't know exactly how she came to be attached to Wyatt, but it was sometime during his stay in Kansas. They possibly met at Fort Scott or possibly Dodge City. Dyke summed it up best. Their meeting was convenient for Wyatt, but tragic for Maddie. She would tell folks in her later years that Wyatt Earp had ruined her life. Part of the reason we don't have much more to go on is the 19th century views of women staying in the background and keeping house. She doesn't appear to have done much in Tombstone aside from what Wyatt asked her to do. But another reason for the silence about her is that Wyatt and his third wife, Josie, did their very best to expunge her from the record. Both would pressure Lake to not include her name in his biography of Wyatt. I'll save her fate for the end of this miniseries, but let's just say that it is not a happy ending. For this week, we'll just wrap up with Wyatt making his way to Arizona with Maddie in tow, and a possibly bright future ahead. But really, I want to end this week on a couple of programming notes. The first is that I knew that the story of Wyatt's youth was going to take up a good chunk of this episode, but didn't realize it would take up all of this episode. So, I want to loop back around next time to cover the life and times of the supporting players in this drama, and maybe finally talk about the Cowboys and the dynamic they brought to Southern Arizona during this time. After that, if I can keep myself from gushing too much, I think we can do an episode about all the tension leading up to the famous gunfight, then one about the fight itself, and then finally the aftermath. But we'll see. As the past two years have proven, I'm horrible at guessing these things. The second is, and I'm sorry to slam on the brakes when we were just picking up steam, 
there will be no episode next week. You see, the missus and I have found a new place to live, so all of next week will be preoccupied with the packing of boxes, the moving of boxes, and the gradual unpacking of boxes. I swear that in regards to everything else except this podcast, this was a really good time for this move. But please come back in two weeks as we bring all our players, Virgil Earp, Morgan Earp, Doc Holliday, and Johnny Bean to Tombstone and watch them all crash headlong into each other and into conflict with the Cowboys. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you have been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.